And as we prepare our hearts now to come to your word, again, O Lord, we ask, do not allow it to harden our hearts. We pray that you would use your word to soften our hearts. We pray that you would use your word to break our hearts, to break any resistance that we might have to your will. We ask, O Lord, that you would humble us. We ask that we would not be a proud people, uh, not be a people who are blinded by pride, but that we'd be a people who are humble and content with what you have given us. And so we ask that as, uh, as we go to your word, we ask that you would use it to soften our hearts, that you would use it to grow us in Christ-likeness. We ask that you would use it to drive out any darkness remaining in our hearts in order that we may more fully be devoted unto your service for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to be finishing the whole chapter today, looking at verses 6 to 30 as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Um, I normally don't preach a whole 24, 25 verses, but uh, this is all one section and there would be no point in actually breaking it up. So it will move pretty fast as we go through the text, faster than we normally do when I preach like one verse or two verses. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- this passage, it's, it's actually amazing uh, to see the Lord's providence sometimes in my preaching schedule. I don't plan these things. I just say, you know, this is what I'm going to preach the first Sunday of every month and, you know, the rest of the month. And this month, of course, you know, the first Sunday of the month, I preached on uh, persecution, uh, on what Jesus said in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount about persecution. And it actually ties in perfectly with the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Because if there's anybody who knew what it was like to be persecuted, it was David. And it starts in this chapter, chapter 18. You know, there are things in life that we can all agree that uh, people either love them or hate them. Uh, For example, let's take black licorice. Uh, most people, I understand, for whatever reason, hate black licorice. They would trade their, their, jelly, their, their black jelly beans for lima beans, uh, but for those of us who absolutely love black licorice, uh, we wouldn't trade our black jelly, uh, jelly beans for anything less than gold. Uh, but, you know, as far as food goes, uh, the same principle applies to sushi. People seem to either love it or hate it. Uh, And there's not a lot of middle ground between those two things. Uh, Movies and entertainment, they they can have the same kind of what you call a polarizing effect, where people either love them or hate them. Uh, For example, I can't even begin to stand all the new Marvel superhero movies uh, that have been put out in recent years, but I realize that there are also a lot of people who love those movies, which is why they keep making them, so stop it. Uh, But... (laughs) People seem to either love or hate uh, things like that. There are certain movies and music, is, it's the same way. And of course, if we're talking about you know, things that people either completely love or completely hate, uh, with there being no middle ground, we must remember that the same principle applies to people as well sometimes. Not everyone, but certainly some people, like Jesus, for example. 
He said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. Where's the middle ground there? There's none. There's no such thing. It's just a myth to think that there is a neutrality that somebody can have toward Jesus. It's only man's fallen imagination that would have us believe that neutrality toward Jesus is possible. And, and, and by extension, just as, as we are either for or against Jesus, uh, the same is true of, of God speaking in a, in a general sense. Now, I'm talking about the true God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the triune God. I'm not talking about some false notion of God. Because uh, there are millions, there's an uncountable number of those. They're called idols. And we have to make this distinction between the true living God and false gods, idols, uh, because people have such a soft notion of God and who He is that many will openly confess hatred for Jesus or they'll openly confess hatred for what the Scriptures say, and yet in the same breath they'll say that they love God. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because to reject Jesus is to reject the true living God. And to reject the Scriptures, to reject God's Word, is likewise to reject God. There is nobody in all of human history who is or who was ambivalent or neutral about Jesus. You either love Him or you hate Him. And either you are for Him or you are against Him. There is no middle, no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. Now as we come to our study today in 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at the remainder again of, of chapter 18 today. And one of the things that we're going to see in this chapter is that just like Jesus was a very polarizing figure, his, his foreshadow, David, David was also unquestionably uh, very polarizing. Uh, in fact, when we think about David, we have to remember that he has been anointed. He's God's chosen one. Uh, but that, how that points to Christ, we have to think about how that points to Christ as well because the word Christ, that wasn't actually part of Jesus' name. It was a title which meant anointed one or, or chosen one. And so it's no wonder that if Jesus was either loved or hated and there was no middle ground, it's no surprise then that people also either loved or hated David. Now we've seen that after returning from the valley of Elah where he defeated the giant Goliath on the battlefield, we saw at the end of chapter 17 that King Saul was really cold and kind of apathetic or impersonal toward David. Uh, and the response of his son, which was given as a contrast at the beginning of chapter 18, uh, it was a sharp, sharp contrast. Rather than giving David the, the cold shoulder as his father had, Jonathan gave David his own personal robe and his armor signifying or symbolizing the relinquishing of his royal prerogatives, his royal rights uh, that he had, giving them essentially to David. And what motivated that action? What motivated uh, the relinquishing of his rights? It was the fact that Jonathan loved David. 
David's victory on behalf of Israel made him into what we uh, might call in our day and age an overnight sensation. Uh, Everyone knew who he was, and it didn't take long for word to spread about what he had done. And thus, while David's victory was the end of 40 days of uh, captivity to fear, at least, uh, to the Philistines and, and Goliath specifically, it was also the beginning of a long period of affliction and hardship and trials for David. The reason for these hardships that he's entering into, it it was simply the fact that people either loved him or hated him. And chief among those who hated David was King Saul. And yet, we should note two things about the hardships and the the afflictions and trials that David is going to face. We're going to see these two things at least. Number one, we're going to see that God would be with David through these trials and afflictions, and he would keep David protected and safe. And number two, uh, we will see that God used these trials that David would face to prepare him for sitting on the throne of Israel. Like every one of the Old Testament saints, as well as every Christian, David would especially need to be concerned about living his life for the glory of God and not being concerned with what worldly people think. Uh, In this period of hardships, David would learn the principle that he would go on to express so eloquently in Psalm 146, verse 3, where he wrote, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His life would be a testimony to that, but his life would also be a testimony to the fact that there is salvation in God. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 to 30 today. And the central point of this passage is that just as the people of Israel either loved or hated David, so too every person today either loves or hates the true and greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since there is no neutral ground, we must examine ourselves to ensure that we truly do love Jesus. Now we've already seen the coldness of of King Saul toward David. Uh, But what starts with coldness soon reveals itself to be more than just a bad mood, more than Saul being, you know, grumpy. It's more than just coldness. It's downright animosity. it's, It's hatred. And that really starts to come to the surface as the people of Israel begin to learn about David's victory against Goliath and as they begin to celebrate this victory. Uh, The celebration was never, uh, it was not Saul's idea. It was never endorsed or condoned by Saul. And so what happens is it really serves to bring forth this rage that he has against David. But we're also going to see why he has this rage against David as we study this passage. But we'll start with verses 6 to 9 of chapter 18. It says, It happened that as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. 
Now, in our day and age, whenever there's a great victory, we, we also see parades where there are uh, celebrations. Sports teams almost always have a parade following a season in which they you know, come out of the season as champions. Uh, there was a famous parade uh, in New York City uh, following the, the victory of the Allied powers in, uh, after World War II. Uh, and, and these parades are, are common. They're, they're marked by, uh, by joy, by excitement. You know, people are you know, happy. They're overjoyed. And David seems to have received a similar reception following his victory over Goliath. People were filled with joy about what he had done. Now, when we come to verse 6, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but we can safely assume that it's been somewhere uh, between a, a couple days, maybe, uh, a couple months. I mean, we don't exactly know. The text doesn't tell us. But verse 5 indicated that there was at least enough time for David uh, to have led the charge on a couple of battles against Israel's enemies by this point. So whatever the case may be, wherever King Saul would go, the women in the cities would come out of the homes uh, to celebrate David's victory, and they would begin singing a song, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, when we read this, our, our poetry is very different than Hebrew poetry. And so when we read something like that, it's very easy for us to read this as being just a complete, uh, you know, totally dogging King Saul, just an insult to him. It, it sounds like something that would be written that's exalting David over King Saul, in English anyway. And while it's possible, possible that that was the intention of whoever the whoever the poet is that wrote it, whoever the songwriter is who, who wrote it, it's most likely uh, just the way that Hebrew poetry was written. Uh, one commentator notes in his commentary that, quote, the convention of putting a number in the first line and beefing it up in the second line was normal Hebrew poetic style, end quote. And so if, if we're reading the song with charity... Uh, try, trying to read it through the eyes of somebody in that culture, in that day and age. We might, might point out, you know, hey, the, the king was actually the one who was named first, as he should be. And so I don't think it was actually meant as a slight to the king. But King Saul has already started viewing David with contempt, to put it nicely. Uh, distrust, maybe. And thus the song uh, only serves to bring out what is going on in King Saul's heart. It, it tends to make, this makes him very angry. Uh, we're told because it left open the possibility, at least the possibility, of being interpreted as a comparison between the two people. A comparison between David and King Saul. And if one chose to interpret it uncharitably, as King Saul did, then, okay, it exalts David as a mightier warrior than the king himself was. Now, if you look at the battlefield, you know that that's exactly true. You know that David was the one who killed Goliath, uh, and King Saul just trembled in fear, just like everybody else. So the song is true, and yet King Saul hates it because it makes him feel slighted. Now, before we see this song as maybe being fun or playful, we should see what, uh, what it reveals about the state of Israel's relationship with God at the time. Because rather than celebrating what God had done th for them through David, and rather than offering praise and thanks 
to the Lord, the song, even interpreted with charity, uh, the song exalts and gives praise to man and not to God. They see David as the hero, and the, and the, 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 the real slight isn't to Saul as the king of Israel. The real slight is to the king of kings, the God who worked through David to give David the victory. Now let's be sure that we're not so gullible or naive to think that we aren't prone to do the same thing. What we see here is, is a glimpse of ancient celebrity culture. Is there a celebrity culture today where people exalt man over God? Absolutely. Uh, David was a godly man, of course, but the people are focused on David. Um, does that happen in the world today? Does, is there ever a situation in which people are more focused, more preoccupied, maybe even more enamored with a preacher than they are with the God that the preacher is talking about? Does that ever happen? We can't deny it. Of course it does. You have these Christian conferences that cost several thousand dollars to attend between admission and hotel and food and a rental car and so on and so forth. It just kind of makes me wonder if the, there wouldn't be a place where that money could be maybe better spent. But the, the question is really what draws people? Why do they go? Now get ready to either say ouch or amen here. Is it God that they come to worship, or is it the preachers featured at the conference? And I'm not saying that this is an issue for everybody who goes to conferences. I don't think it is. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have conferences. I think that we should. But every featured speaker there knows that there's a possibility that somebody in attendance has made or easily could make that preacher into an idol. We as Christians of all people should not follow the world's example in terms of celebrity culture, having a celebrity culture. We shouldn't follow the world's example in idolizing and praising and uplifting men, even faithful men, instead of God. Compare this song that the, the women here are singing. David has killed the 10,000, Saul killed his, his thousands, or the other way around. But compare that song uh, about David with the song of, uh, that was written by Miriam uh, that she wrote after the waves of the Red Sea came crashing down on the Egyptians who were pursuing the Hebrews in the Exodus. She's saying this in Exodus chapter 15, 21, after God had delivered them and had used Moses to deliver them, right? He used Moses, let's get that much clear. But it was ultimately God. Miriam sings this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 21. She says, Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and His rider He has hurled into the sea. Not a single word about Moses, and that's exactly the way it should be. Do you see the difference between Miriam's song and the song that these women in Israel are singing in David's day and age? Let's never forget the fact that God alone deserves the glory for the work that He does. 
He, he alone deserves all the glory. Make no mistake about it, however, Saul didn't want God to have any glory either. Uh, he didn't want David to have any glory. Uh, he didn't want God to have any glory. Saul wanted all the glory for himself. Saul has been all about his own glory, his own agenda, ever since we were first introduced to him. And so, therefore, for that reason, it's not even surprising uh, that this song, which seemed at least to him to be giving more glory to David than to Saul, it provoked a deep, jealous rage within King Saul. Uh, and the result of his insecurities is revealed. We see it in chapter, uh, here in chapter 18, verse 9, where we're told that Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it's been said that the envious die not once, but as often as the envied win applause. And this is exactly how Saul relates to David from this point forward. What a terrible thing it is to be ensnared by envy. Envy has to be dealt with. And it has to be dealt with quickly as there are very, very few other things, other emotions or human reactions that will cause as much damage as envy will. Not only to oneself, but to anyone who is nearby. Envy turns somebody into a ticking time bomb. And nothing turns a person into a hater of the neighbor that he has been commanded by God to love the way that envy does. And so thus the Christian's response to feelings of envy. Envy is just a nice way of saying extreme covetousness. We recognize that coveting is a violation of the Ten Commandments, right? But the Christian's response to feelings of envy or covetousness is to repent and to stop looking for contentment in what somebody else has, but to find contentment in the portion that God has provided for you. God is a good Father. Would He neglect His children? No, He wouldn't. Jesus made the same point. What father would, would give his son a stone if he asks for bread? God loves us. God provides what we need. And so to envy another person is really to feel discontent with what God has given us. Matthew Henry comments saying this. He says, quote, Proud men cannot endure to hear any praised but themselves and think all their honor lost that goes by themselves. It is a sign that the Spirit of God has departed from men if they be peevish in their resentment of affronts, envious and suspicious of all about them, and ill-natured in their conduct. For the wisdom from above makes us quite otherwise. End quote. That is to say, the wisdom from above doesn't make us envious. The wisdom from above makes us feel content with what God has given us as our portion. Now think about how much trouble Saul could have saved himself if only he had recognized that he was in sin here by envying David and turned to God instead to find his sense of contentment. Yes, David's Existence would torment Saul, but it, it didn't need to. It didn't need to. It, it only tormented Saul because Saul didn't repent. It only tormented Saul because Saul wouldn't lay down his, his selfish and foolish pride. 
But the cure for envy is always, always the same. The cure for covetousness is always the same. It's to find contentment with the portion that God has given you. Ultimately, it's to find your contentment in God alone. To trust that He's a good Father who won't neglect you, who hasn't neglected you, but who has given you everything that you need. And so therefore, you have no reason at all to feel discontent. And so if you start feeling discontent, it's irrational and it's sinful. But as it was for Saul, his heart was just tormented by the possibility that people admired and respected David more than they admired or respected him. That's what the point of envy there is. And the insanity of Saul's envy becomes clear to us when we consider that it wasn't that long ago when we were told that Saul actually greatly loved David because David so greatly aided Saul's troubled spirit by playing music for him. And Saul's response to that was to love David just a chapter and a half ago. But the danger of refusing to repent of a sinful attitude like this, like envy, is that it will eventually start working its way out. It'll eventually start showing up one way or another, whether that's in maybe our words or in our works. And for Saul, it apparently did not take long for his envy to start bearing uh, wicked fruit. Uh, We start reading about it in verse 10. Let's look at verses 10 to 11. Uh, 10, 10 to 12. It says, Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence. Twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. We actually see such humility demonstrated in David's life. Here's a guy who has been thrown into the spotlight, the national spotlight. Here's a guy who is an overnight sensation, a hero as far as everybody else is concerned. Somebody who's been elevated to rock star status after his victory over Goliath. But he didn't stop faithfully serving Saul by playing music for him, playing the harp as a means of soothing Saul's troubled soul. So what we should see is that there is absolutely no animosity or anything that David has towards Saul. In fact, David continues to honor Saul by serving him. But think about this picture that we're given in these verses for a moment. What kind of a raving lunatic, what kind of absolute madman walks around his house with a spear in his hand, chasing a young boy, uh, looking to pin him to the wall? I'll tell you what kind of man does that. It's a man who has allowed the envy of his heart to grow and to blossom and to bear wicked fruit. And it happens quickly. In this case, one day. It took one day. Sinful attitudes will result in sinful actions. Sinful attitudes will result in sinful actions. 
And in this case, the seeds of murder were planted, took root, and produced murderous fruit very quickly, which only underlines the reality for us that such dark, sinful attitudes must be dealt with promptly and thoroughly. We can't look at envy or covetousness as some small, insignificant thing. In one day, we see that it produces murderous desire in Saul. Something that's small, something that's insignificant, something that can be dealt with later doesn't pose that kind of risk to us. But we have to see that David, uh, that, that Saul's ultimate problem wasn't David. That ultimately, it was the fact that it had become apparent to Saul that God was with David and for David. Now this becomes apparent to him after he misses pinning him to the wall with his spear twice. So that's why we read in verse 12, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now we saw back in chapter 16 that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. Uh, It signified uh, God's rejection of Saul as Israel's king, but here we see the depths of Saul's rejection of God in the way that he attempts to murder David, and yet he fails So how exactly did he fail? And why did his failure convince him that God was with and for David instead of himself? Maybe it means that something miraculous happened when Saul tried to murder David. Maybe there was some kind of miraculous intervention. Whatever the case may be, it became apparent to Saul that God was indeed with David now, which is what caused Saul to hate and to fear David. Now Saul has gone from loving David to hating him without there having been even a, a small time of transition. But Saul's ultimate issue was the fact that God was blessing David in a way that he was not blessing Saul anymore. Saul has hated God all along, even when the Spirit of God was with him. Uh, It's just becoming more personal for Saul at this point. His own hostile rebellion against God was ultimately what Saul's problem was. His problem was, was with David, but the only reason it was with David is because he had a problem with God. And God is with David. Now, instead of trying to pin David to the wall with his spear... What should Saul have done? Because he seems to have recognized, okay, I I can't kill this guy. Uh, The Lord is with him. What should he have done when he realized that? He should have repented, yes. And it should have been enough. Seeing, Seeing that God was with David, it should have been enough to convince him to quit hardening his heart against God. But that is how foolish pride is. Even seeing God protect David from being killed by his spear wasn't sufficient, wasn't enough to convince Saul to repent or to leave David alone. Instead, what he does is he hardens his heart even further as he comes up with plan B, another plan to get David out of the way. So we'll continue in verses 13 to 16. It says, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David 
And he went out and came in before them. Just as the Spirit of God had departed from King Saul, Saul now has David depart from him, from his presence. But instead of giving David a demotion, instead of saying, hey, uh, shepherd boy, go back out to your sheep, sending him back out into the countryside, instead of that, uh, where he could live a peaceful life, he comes up with a plan to get rid of David completely. He gives him not a demotion, but a promotion, promoting him to Saul's commander of a thousand. <clears throat> Saul's thinking seems to have been that uh, if he himself, if Saul himself couldn't be the one to take David's life, then surely somebody on the battlefield would be the man for the job. But his plan ends up actually backfiring on him because instead of David meeting his demise on the battlefield, we read in verse 14 that David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. And as Saul got word that David was prospering, which you'd think a king would love to hear, you'd think that a king would love to hear that the, the commander of a thousand, uh, whatever position, whatever ranking that would have been in their army, you would think that he'd be like, yes, I knew that I put him in a good, you know, hey, take some credit. You made a great decision, right? But he doesn't. Instead, what we read is he dreaded his face. He dreaded him. Uh, literally translated, it's he dreaded his face, which is just kind of an interesting way of saying that he was just tormented by David's continued success. And of course, all the success that David was having on the battlefield not only continued to, to further harden Saul's heart toward him, but it also softened the hearts of everyone in Israel toward David. They had longed for a king who would lead them in battle and who would fight their battles for them. You'll remember that when they turned away from God, it was because they wanted a king who would fight their battles for them, like the other nations had, right? And David's victories proved to the people of Israel that he was the kind of man that they could get behind, that they could rally behind, that they could love. He was being celebrated as a national hero, and that was driving Saul absolutely insane. Saul had to have been thinking to himself, what do I have to do to get rid of this guy? Because plan A didn't work. Plan B doesn't seem to be working. Well, Saul couldn't get the job done. And if, if the enemies of Israel couldn't get the job done, who could possibly get the job done? And so Saul searches his mind, apparently. In his mind, he needed to get David out of the spotlight. And so he conceives of this idea of fulfilling a promise or looking like he's fulfilling a promise that he had made to anyone who defeated Goliath in battle. The idea was that Saul could maybe hasten David's death or demise by convincing David to get married to his oldest daughter. And so we read in verses 17 to 19, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. Uh, I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my, fa my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now, 
We don't know exactly what the plot was here, exactly how uh, marrying Mirab would have resulted in him uh, being killed by the Philistines. Maybe it would have uh, just distracted David. Uh, maybe getting married would be a distraction for him as, as a newlywed. Uh, maybe Mirab was in on some plot to take David's life. Uh, whatever the case, Saul doesn't offer her hand in marriage uh, as a reward or unconditionally. Uh, rather, he asks of David, only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. In other words, uh, this, was, this was the condition. This was what you would call the bride price for receiving his daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, so, so at least maybe that would result in David being killed by the Philistines. But while this offer sounds reasonable on the surface, when we read just the first half of verse 17, we're actually then given a glimpse of his thinking. We're, so, we're told that uh, Saul thought to himself, my hand shall not be against him, but let the, the hand of the Philistines be against him. So that's why he does this. He's trying to get David killed. But he's trying to sound like he's being gracious about everything. Uh, behind the, the, behind the, the facade, behind this, this ploy, is the idea that surely going out to battle against the Philistines would eventually prove to be the demise, the, the end, uh, the death of David. Uh, I love commentator William Blakey's uh, note on this. He writes that, quote, nothing shows a wickeder heart than being willing to involve another and especially one's own child in a lifelong sorrow in order to gratify some feeling of one's own. Putting your daughter out there as a way to get David killed. How low do you have to go? But David actually doesn't accept the offer. He declines the offer. And the beautiful thing is, uh, it's not that David was you know, so smart that he figured out what King Saul was trying to do. Maybe he knew, maybe he didn't. But rather, it's because he was so humble that he turns down this, uh, this offer. His response to the offer is to plead his own unworthiness to be brought into the royal family. He's not saved, therefore, by the sword, or by his smarts, but he's saved by brandishing just a deep sense of personal humility. He says to Saul, who am I? And what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the, son, the king's son-in-law? Richard Phillips notes of David's humble response. He says, quote, coming from a poor family and one in which there was recent non-Jewish blood, as the book of Ruth reveals, David sincerely thought it awkward for him to be married to a woman of such high standing as Merab. And so the plot fails, and we're told that at the time when Merab, King uh, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Moholathite for a wife. Now maybe... Dave, uh, maybe Saul's intention in saying, okay, forget it, she's going to be going to this guy instead. Maybe his intention in giving her to somebody else immediately, it sounds like, uh, was to make David feel slighted or, or cheated or, or overlooked or whatever. Uh, but it seems like it was kind of an emotional decision that he made. It was a quick decision, um, but an emotional one to take it, David. But David just takes it all in stride. He's, he's not offended by it. Uh, it doesn't seem to have bothered him in the, the least bit, the slightest bit. 
But it's interesting to note that all five of Merab's sons with Adriel would actually be put to death years later as revenge for Saul's sins against the Gibeonites, which we'll learn about when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. But David continues to be the thorn in Saul's side. He continues to be the problem that just won't go away as far as Saul is concerned. And so while all of Israel grew more and more fond of David, Saul's hatred for David continues to grow as well. And at some point down the road, we don't know exactly how much time passes between verses 19 and 20, there will be another opportunity uh, that would present itself for Saul to plot against David. So we read in verses 20 to 25. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. What a plot. What, what contempt he must have had for his daughters. Uh, here we get introduced to another daughter, a younger daughter named Michal. Uh, we don't know really anything about her, uh, but we should note that her father, who would have known her far better than we do, at least at this point, thought that uh, by giving her hand in marriage to David, it would somehow be a snare for David, and it would put an even bigger target on David's back as far as the Philistines were concerned. Uh, of course, there's a, a long history of animosity between the Philistines and the Israelites. Uh, maybe, maybe Michal had some kind of connection with the Philistines, uh, or maybe the, the idea was just to get these 104 skins going out into battle. That would be too much for David to handle. But the phrase, uh, to be a snare, or, or be a snare, is a phrase that's used multiple times in, uh, in the Old Testament, multiple places in the Old Testament. Uh, it refers to the practice of idolatry, uh, being a snare does. We read in Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, God says uh, to the Israelites, they shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Uh, in Judges chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the angel of the Lord, uh, that's Jesus, by the way. Uh, Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He uh, recalls to the Israelites uh, how he had said to them, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. And he goes on to say, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. 
So whenever this phrase is used, it's talking about idolatry. And King Saul's thinking seems to be that, uh, okay, if, if, God, if he has this great love for God and that's what's keeping God on his side, I need to make him stop loving God. So I'll give him my daughter. So his idea is that his daughter will become an idol for David and David will no longer have God protecting him. But using his daughter to lure David into the practice of idolatry. What an evil and wicked idea. Notice, by the way, how he instructs his servants to go to David privately and to just lie to them. Uh, David, they, they would preface this invitation to become the, uh, the king's son-in-law by saying, behold, the king delights in you. How true is that on a scale of one to ten? Zero. It's not even remotely true. Behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But the king certainly didn't love or delight in David. And once again, David's deep personal sense of humility shields him from an offer that a prideful attitude would have fallen for immediately. Do you see how David's humility and the, and the fruit of that humility is actually being contrasted with the pride of Saul and the fruit of his pride in this chapter? David shows us the attitude of a true servant of God. Uh, he's not there to exalt himself. He's not there for his own glory. Humility uh, should mark every servant of the Lord. Humility doesn't only flow from an accurate view of our shortcomings and our sinfulness, however. We should also note that it's the opposite of envy. And so there's a contrast there. There's the contrast. It's a, it's a contrast to envy in that it flows not from a sense of discontentment, but humility flows from a sense of contentment with what God has given us, what he has provided. So David doesn't need what anybody has in order for him to feel a sense of contentment. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need the accolades. He doesn't need the glory. He doesn't need to be exalted above everybody else. He only has what God gave him, and he's happy with what God gave him. He's already got this sense of contentment, so he doesn't need to get it from something that somebody else has. And this sense of contentment not only shields him from feeling things like envy and covetousness, but it also uh, protects him from making quick, irrational, unwise decisions. Uh, but what we see here is that Saul... This time, he doesn't give up easily. Saul clearly, clearly wants to see David meet his demise. He wants David dead. And so he sends his servants back uh, with a message. The king does not desire any dowry or, or bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. In other words, if David's hesitation or his apprehension uh, about getting married to Saul's daughter was that he's so poor and he's so lowly. Well, the king didn't want any money. He didn't care about his position. The king wanted revenge. So instead, he wants a hundred foreskins of the Philistines as the price for his daughter's hand in marriage. But Saul's real thinking is once again revealed to us in verse 25, where he says, Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So it wasn't about revenge at all, maybe revenge against David, but it wasn't about revenge against the Philistines. But this time, 
David accepts the offer. He's agreeable to Saul's offer. Let's look at verses 26 to 30. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and, uh, and that Michal, his, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Now, Saul thought that having David really desecrate the dead bodies of a hundred soldiers, if he thought that that would so enrage the armies of the Philistines that David wouldn't stand a chance of escaping with his life, well, King Saul had another thing coming. Because David doesn't just slay a hundred Philistines, he takes down two hundred of them. And we're told when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. John Woodhouse makes an interesting observation in his commentary, and I think this observation is important for the full understanding of this passage. He says that, quote, the Hebrew word translated enemy is the participle of a verb that means to be hostile toward or to hate, end quote. And so what we're supposed to see here is that there were really only two responses to David. People either loved David or they hated him. Either they were overjoyed with David and saw him as a hero, or they absolutely could not even stand the thought of him. And King Saul was in the latter category. He absolutely hated David. This is the kind of irrational hatred, the kind of irrational persecution that Jesus had in mind when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, which we covered just two weeks ago. Uh, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is an irrational, illogical hatred that Saul has for David. Because Saul's hatred is really not toward David, it's toward the God who was with and for David. And so in the end, God not only preserves David's life, but David's wisdom on the battlefield, because the Lord is with him, results in David's name being highly esteemed among his countrymen as a warrior on the battlefield. In all that David did, he prospered. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. First Psalm, 
verse 3 says of the blessed man, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. That's a description of what's going on with David now. Not because of David, not because David's so good, but because God is continually causing him to prosper. Nobody was neutral about David. Nobody was apathetic when it came to David. People either loved him or they hated him. And that's what we see in this chapter. There's nobody who's just apathetic about David. People love him. We're told that six times in this chapter. But we're also told that Saul hated him. And so if you were not with David, you were against him. If you weren't against him, you were for him and with him. And that had everything in the world to do with the fact that God was with and for David, by the way. That's exactly why Saul so hated David. But it's also exactly why Jonathan, Saul's son, so greatly loved David. This chapter is filled with all these contrasts between all these characters, this character and and that character, but the ultimate character in this chapter is God. God is the one who is behind every victory that David experiences. God is the one behind every wise decision that he makes. God is the one behind David's uh, contentment and humility. Just as the people of Israel either loved or hated David, this principle continues to this day. And it was exemplified, it was especially seen, the epitome of it was seen in Jesus Everybody either loves him or they hate him. And since there is no neutral ground with Jesus, we must examine ourselves to ensure that we truly love him because God being with us matters more than anything. Just as David prospered in everything that he did, the Lord gave us this promise. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Is that a description of prospering? It's a description of prospering in the way that really matters. Contrary to what these junk teachers on TV will teach you. It doesn't mean money. It means you'll bear much fruit. More important than prospering militarily or financially, all who abide in Jesus will prosper spiritually in life, bearing good fruit. Fruit that glorifies the God who abides in His people. The God who is with and for His people continually. Now although it's true that, yes, if if, if you are reflecting Christ... Uh, You are going to be hated. You are going to be persecuted. We also have this promise. And so did David from Psalm 121, uh, verses 5 and 7. The promise is this. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord is the one who numbers our days. The Lord is the one who determines when we're born, where we're born, and when we will go home. And nobody, nobody can send us home to be with the Lord until the time that the Lord has ordained. That's ultimately why Saul was unable to kill David point blank in his own house. We see that in this chapter. We see God preserving David's life. Why? Because God's the one who's numbered David's life, his days. It's not Saul. 
And even though the world may have an irrational hatred or contempt for you, even though the world may persecute you, here's what I want. Here's what I desire for you. Here's what I want to urge you to do. I want you to cling to the promise that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you cling to that promise? That nothing can separate you from God's love if you are in Christ Jesus. See, David's greatest victory wasn't a battlefield victory. David's greatest victory was he's got all these temptations laid out before him. He's been exalted to rock star status. He could do almost anything that he wants. But rather, but he doesn't. He, he turns away from all these temptations because he has his confidence and his contentment in the portion that the Lord has blessed him with. We saw three times in this chapter that the Lord was with David. The Lord being with David made all the difference. Well, Jesus is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And God being with us makes all the difference. So the question is then, is he with you? The way to answer that question is this, do you believe in him? Do you believe that salvation is only found by trusting in Jesus? That you must have His righteousness because you have none of your own and God requires it? Do you believe that? And do you believe that He died for you personally? Do you believe that your sins were all cast upon Him and that His perfect righteousness was cast upon you? Have you seen and have you understood that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of your greatest and deepest love and devotion? Have you seen that? Have you realized that? Do you understand that? If you have, then walk with Him. And what I mean by that is obey Him. Heed your will to His. Yield your will to His. If you have trusted in Him alone for your salvation, He's not only God with you, but He is God for you. And if God is with us, and if God is for us, then ultimately, it doesn't matter what the souls of the world think about us or do to try to dissuade us. They cannot take away our greatest treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the sufficiency of Your Word, for the way that even in a story like this, we're taught such important principles. We see, Lord, that we are either with You or against You just as the people were either with or against David. And so we thank You that by Your grace, You have turned us from rebels who were against You into servants 
who desire to be faithful, who desire to faithfully serve you. Oh God, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. And we pray that you would give us contentment. Teach us to find contentment. Despite what the souls of the world may think or do, despite whatever it might cost us personally, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you as our greatest treasure. Help us, O oh Lord, to be like David, to not be tempted by the things of this world because we're so content with you and the things that you have blessed us with. Teach us, O oh Lord, to glorify you in all that we do. And we pray, Lord, that we would prosper, not, uh, not financially or in any sense other than prospering spiritually. We pray that we would bear much good fruit to the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.